Hi, I'm Mark Reed. Follow me as I attempt to put my new book, Impact Culture, into practice and discuss it with others taking a similar journey. You'll get tips that will help you achieve more impact from your research and stay healthy, no matter how busy you are. Rediscover your purpose. Lead from behind to empower those around you. Transform your work culture. Welcome to Season 4 of the Fast Track Impact Podcast. The focus of this fourth season is going to be on impact culture. Thinking about impact in a deeper and more holistic way than you've ever thought about it before. So you're going to get all of my latest thinking on impact culture from both my book and my course. Now, the great thing about writing a book while you're training out of that book is that the training course, of course, has benefited from writing. It's, uh, you know, I've dug into the literature, I've theorised, etc., and that's built a, a much more effective training course. But of course, the book has benefited from the training because, huh, people are trying this out, they're feeding back to me. It doesn't quite work how you said it might work, Mark. Okay, great. Let's revise this. Let's think about this. Let's tell some of those stories and try and make this as practical as possible. And so, of course, in this podcast series, you're going to benefit not only from the book, but from the training and my experience working with researchers from different types of universities all around the world to actually make this stuff happen. So, in theory, the lessons you're going to learn from this are going to be as practical as they are evidence-based. Now, the podcast is part of a broader community of practice. I'm going to be launching this uh, as a website alongside the book. Uh, so a load of different things. There's going to be discussion groups, uh, a reading group, uh, loads of free training, some of that by me, uh, but much of that suggested by and co-trained uh, by members of the global impact community. So uh, if you've got ideas for a training course, a, a discussion group, um, something we should all be reading in as part of the 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 reading, uh, reading group, get in touch with me, uh, tell me, uh, and I will be interviewing many of the people who contribute to this community of practice as part of the podcast. So it's not just going to be me. Um, I also want to try and give you a flavour of what this stuff looks like in practice from my own practice as a new leader. Uh, I moved roles, I changed uh, from Newcastle University, where I'm still a visiting professor, to Scotland's Rural College just over a year ago. And one of the reasons I wanted to shift was that I wanted to actually take on a leadership role, a management role, uh, and actually lead some of this culture change stuff that I've been talking about and training and facilitating others to lead. And of course, as a leader, uh, if you've been a leader, you'll know things don't always go according to plan. And so uh, over the course of this season, you'll be hearing what works and what doesn't work, warts and all. Uh, and I hope that you'll be inspired by my failures um, and how I recover, hopefully, from those failures as much as by the things that, uh, that go right. Uh, in addition to this, I'm going to be threading through a number of uh, episodes, uh, which I will be jointly recording with my wife, Dr. Joyce Reed. She's a health coach. Uh, she finished working in the NHS as a hospital doctor a few years ago because she was burnt out. Um, and she managed to recover herself from burnout uh, and is now teaching others uh, based on that. Uh, ideally, how to avoid getting burned out. Uh, but uh, if you are burned out and stressed out, 
and things aren't going well for you. Uh, training uh, courses, but episodes uh, as well uh, that will give you practical skills uh, to maintain your physical and your emotional health and become more resilient as a researcher. Uh, retaining your health, uh, your work-life balance, um, and bringing that whole authentic self into work uh, and into your home life as well. And it is that kind of authentic whole that I really want to try and get across in this uh, in this season, because that's really where my thinking is on impact. Uh, all of the dichotomies and uh, different silos uh, are beginning to dissolve, um, and uh, impact as, uh, as a philosophy, as a, as a way of life. Um, uh, and I think one of the things that, that has inspired me is hearing from our community. When we did a rebrand a few years ago, and we asked people to say, what are the words that come to mind when you think about fast track impact. And something that I wasn't expecting was the word inspiring. Now, at the time, we had a strapline that was, if I remember rightly, uh, training for researchers by researchers. And we've changed that and we've added in the word inspiring um, uh, or inspire or something along those lines. Um, because ultimately, people come to our courses thinking that they're going to get a bunch of time-saving tools that will enable them to do impact or whatever it is that the course is about. But they leave feeling inspired. And it is my hope that we can dig deeper, uh, dig beneath the lessons the ideas, the theories, the practices, and find that hearts and minds kind of message. Um, and hopefully we're going to come back to that again and again and just get you to think uh, on those deeper levels and uh, finish listening to an episode and be mulling things over <laughs> and, uh, and coming back uh, having gone on an internal journey uh, yourself. So let's dig into the main content of today's episode and ask, what is impact culture? Impact, of course, is everywhere these days. You can't get funding if you can't demonstrate that you've got it. And many governments around the world are now assessing the impact of the work that they fund. In the UK, where I work, this is the Research Excellence Framework. We've got equivalents in many countries around the world, uh, mainly in the most uh, research-intensive countries. And in the UK, funding and league table results uh, are all linked to how well we do on impact. And that's pressure. Now, that pressure is leading to negative consequences. The Wellcome Trust uh, did a survey of over 3,000 UK researchers back in 2020. And of the top five words that came to people's minds when they described their research culture, three were insecure, pressured, and competitive. And not far behind that was the word metrics. Now, increasingly, sadly, fingers are pointing at impact as at least one of the causes of this demotivation. 75% of the people who were surveyed by the Wellcome Trust said that they thought their research was being stifled by an impact agenda. Uh, I did some research uh, that I co-authored co with uh, Jennifer Chubb from University of York a few years ago based on interviews with UK and Australian academics, which confirmed this. People saying to us that increasingly they were prioritising not the questions they thought were most interesting or most important for their discipline, but the most fundable questions, which were very often the most impactful questions. If it's not impactful enough, it's not fundable, therefore there's no point in asking. 
asking the question. Uh, and as a result, uh, a British psychologist from the research, uh, and I'm going to quote, uh, said, I'm doing shit research now because that's what they wanted, which is just tragic. But just because the impact agenda seems to be going wrong, it doesn't mean that the world doesn't need help from researchers. Uh, so I was uh, just uh, end of last year, um, back in November at COP26, the climate conference, presenting some of my climate uh, change related research, uh, and also actually presenting some of my impact culture work. Uh, and of course, I was one of many researchers who were doing their best to use their research to try and solve the climate crisis. And, of course, we want to tackle urgent, complex, important global issues. But the problem is that we are part of a system, our university system, that was designed to generate knowledge, not impact. And current attempts to extrinsically incentivize researchers to generate impact within these systems are very often leading to negative, unintended consequences. Uh, a couple of years ago, in fact, uh, one of my mentees told me that they'd asked specifically for me to be their mentor because they'd noticed that one of the criteria for making senior lecturer uh, was uh, to, to have an impact, uh, an impact case study. Uh, and uh, I did a survey a few years ago and found uh, of, of all the universities in the UK, apart from one um, uh, that I could find evidence for, uh, it was not possible to work this out for everyone, uh, but uh, for the majority of universities in Britain, other than one, um, impact is now linked to promotion criteria. And if that's not a conflict of interests, then I don't know what is. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, the impact agenda has, of course, empowered many researchers to achieve impacts that they would never have dreamt of doing and that would not have been possible without the funding and the incentives that have been thrown at this. I have no doubt uh, that a lot of the impact that we've achieved, especially in the UK, where we have uh, put all of these resources into impact, that this would not have otherwise happened. So I think there is additional good stuff that has happened from this. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Uh, but at the same time, uh, as we see more and more impressive impacts, we're seeing more and more stories of distrust, of broken trust, as these in incentives create conflicts of interest for researchers who are engaging now for impact rather than for the good of those they are engaging with. So dropping people like a stone uh, who can't give them the impact they need, <laughs> uh, or taking credit for impacts that other people invested their lives in. Uh, albeit linked in evidence uh, to evidence in some way, uh, and now because we've helped them along the along that path, uh, we're now going to write an impact case study and shine it up and say, "Look at us! We did this. It was us." <laughs> um, uh, but uh, even bigger than the growing uh, scepticism about the motives of researchers out there, I think, is the apathy that is growing in the academy. As we feel like the bean counters in the academy now want some magic impact beans that they can turn into beanstalks for us to climb up and shout to the world about our research from. The majority of researchers are, of course, happy to know that their research gets used and makes a difference, but many of us do what we do simply because we're curious or we love a challenge. We're not the kind of people that want to change the world, and that's fine. We can all engage with impact to different degrees and for different reasons. But that's not how it feels 
If you're not doing impact, then somehow it feels nowadays like you're a second-class researcher and the others are maybe looking down their noses at you. Oh, yeah, I'm doing stuff that's in the public good, in the public interest, and what are you doing? You're just navel-gazing and being curiosity-driven, and what's the point of that? <laughs> um, and, uh, and that was certainly one of the findings from, uh, from Jan's earlier work, um, which she's uh, published. Uh, that uh, that shows that uh, there's a sense of the tables being turned. That once upon a time, uh, it was the uh, non-applied, pure uh, bench scientists, the, the the theoreticians, the methodologists, uh, who were at the top of the tree, looking down their nose at the more, more applied researchers, um, who in turn looked down their noses at people like me who actually work with business or policymakers and get their hands dirty. Um, uh, and and there's a sense that actually the tables are turned, and now it's people like me who are at the top of the top of the tree, and that somehow I'm looking down my noses, my nose, and other people like me are looking down their noses at you if you're not doing something that has a clear public interest in the short term. And that's a problem. If the impact agenda is demotivating us and breeding distrust and apathy out there beyond the economy, then how on earth can we stimulate the kind of transformation we need both within our institutions and beyond our institutions and mobilise our brightest minds to tackle the world's most intractable problems? And that's why I believe that we need to look deeply at the research cultures we find ourselves in. Impact culture is, of course, just one part of the wider research culture we work in. And cultures vary both within and across institutions. So we all have different experiences, some more empowering than others. So throughout this season of the podcast, and of course in my new book, I want to empower you to envision the kind of nurturing, inspiring culture that would enable you to do the best work of your career and start to create your own culture between you and your closest colleagues. At worst, you'll create a protective bubble in a culture that you find challenging. But at best, you're going to find new ways of working that are going to spread to others, and you now become part of a bottom-up grassroots change. We do things differently here now. So if you're feeling demotivated by the culture that you're in, you don't have to settle for second best and just put up with it. You don't have to move institution even. Instead, my call is to start thinking how you can make small changes right now, innovating, sharing what works, evaluating what works, uh, talking to others about your successes, learning from your failures so that others can learn from you as well. And and together we are beginning to create the change that we all want to see. So if that's my problem statement, I guess, uh, why we need to think more deeply about impact culture, well, what actually is this? And to describe this, I'm going to read a short section from my new book where I've provided a definition and a framework and I'm going to ask you to draw a simple Venn diagram in your mind's eye. 
as I talk. You're going to be able to get your hands on a physical copy of this uh, very soon. Uh, March the 25th is the launch date for the new book. Uh, I'll give you a bit more on that uh, at the end of the episode. But for now, uh, in your mind's eye, uh, see if you can draw this Venn diagram. And I will attempt to read uh, when you get the, uh, if you decide to go with the uh, audible uh, version of the book, you'll discover that I read much better uh, when I've been edited than I do live. But let's give this a try anyway. If you want to change your impact culture, you need to know if it is broken and how to fix it. To do this, you need to be able to work out where the problems lie and where things are going well, so you can build on what works and start fixing the worst issues. A definition is a useful place to start, so I will define impact culture simply as communities of people with complementary purpose who have the capacity to use their research to benefit society. And if you're about to rewind and play that again, I always do that with definitions. Here it is again. Uh, my definition of impact culture. Communities of people with complementary purpose who have the capacity to use their research to benefit society. Based on my definition, there are four components I will unpack in my book. A healthy impact culture, one, emerges from a clear individual and shared purpose. Two, generates impacts that are based on rigorous, ethical and action-oriented research. Three, forms and is lived out by groups of people as they interact with both academic and non-academic communities. And four, builds internal capacity and leadership that facilitate the research, community and purpose that underpins impact. I've visualised this in the book as a Venn diagram where impact culture emerges at the intersection between three things. So here are your three circles. Draw these in your imagination. Research, community and purpose. And I've drawn this as a Venn diagram because any one of these three elements alone, research, community, purpose, will not provide even a rough approximation of a group's impact culture. So it's a Venn diagram and therefore there are three points at which the circles overlap in the diagram. First, your purpose shapes the choices you make about which research questions to ask, how you conduct your research and to what end, whether that is to further understand the problem or research potential solutions. Equally, the rigour, ethics and typically unpredictable outcomes of your research will have a significant bearing on the purposes you can achieve. Second, the purpose of your research can significantly shape relationships with peers and stakeholders, either underpinning or undermining trust and connection, for example, depending on whether the purpose is theoretical or applied, problem or solution-oriented, competitive or collaborative. Equally, interactions with peers and stakeholders can significantly shape your purpose as you are influenced, inspired or challenged through these collisions. And third, 
Engaging with peers and stakeholders can significantly enhance the quality and relevance of your research and enable you to deliver more meaningful impacts. Equally, collaborating with diverse peers and co-producing impact with stakeholders can deliver original insights that also meet felt needs and priorities. Finally, each of these three components of a healthy impact culture are facilitated by sufficient internal capacity, which I've placed as a fourth circle, encompassing the three core components of an impact culture. So imagine your Venn diagram and then we've got another circle all the way around the outside. This is capacity that underpins these three core elements. Capacity, including skills, resources, leadership, strategic and learning capacity, can give researchers the academic freedom to find their purpose and pursue their most important priorities. It can provide training and support on research ethics and institutional capacity to connect researchers with publics and stakeholders via knowledge brokers, boundary organisations, connecting universities and non-academics, which I define and discuss later in the book, and other initiatives. At this point, I want to give you a bird's eye view of my definition and framework, but I'm going to provide much more on the basis of each component and, crucially, how you can put this framework into practice in part two of the book. Alternatively, if you can put up with a bit of jargon and you want to read the paper version of the framework with all the supporting references and look at my article with Professor Yoan Faisi, uh, which I'm going to put into the show notes. So there we go. I read that better than I thought I was going to, but I surprised even myself. Uh, an excerpt that gives you a sense of what this framework is about. As I said, you can dig into this already by looking at the peer-reviewed article in the show notes. And I'm going to delve into each of these four components, research, community, purpose and capacity. Uh, and I'll put uh, dedicate one episode to each of these um, later in the season. And we'll come back to this in various other ways um, through other episodes as well. For now, I'm going to leave you with uh, a couple of thoughts about how this might be working in practice. So as I said at the beginning, I want to thread through some of my own story uh, as a new leader uh, leading a, a centre uh, on natural capital at Scotland's Rural College. Uh, and I'm going to focus on the community part of the framework uh, for now. So the idea with this centre is that rather than starting with my own grand vision and inviting others to join, I want to co-create a vision for the centre with our stakeholders first. So we're going to be able now, uh, as a result of this, to address the questions and issues that are important to them and now build something from first principles that meets their needs rather than our needs as researchers. Now that takes a degree of trust. I've had to convince um, uh, my managers that uh, not focusing on bringing in the big box and the papers and just trying to build these networks and get impact is going to work. Uh, and of course, given how uh, funding now is linked to impact, it doesn't seem like too bad a bet. Uh, let's you know, build some potential 
for impact, uh, build these networks, and uh, that will then create the research questions that will hopefully then bring in uh, the funding, the papers, and all of the traditional metrics as well. Uh, but uh, for now, uh, this means that uh, we, uh, before we've uh, even uh, opened to applications from any researchers, so uh, no researcher members of the centre, this is still just under development, uh, we have already begun to achieve a number of, uh, of impacts. Um, uh, small projects, typically, uh, not huge amounts of money coming in, but uh, projects, uh, whether funded or unfunded, uh, that are directly feeding into policy and practice. And we are beginning to co-produce these larger projects. So the largest one so far is a 100 grand project funded by the British Academy, co-led by me and a colleague from the United Nations Environment Programme. And we've got larger projects in the pipeline that, uh, that we're developing um, with these communities. As we become more embedded within our stakeholder community, we are helping facilitate impacts uh, between these funded projects and getting a real feel for the, the needs of this community, the tensions, the conflicts, the issues, the characters, the personalities, uh, the influences, um, and so on and so forth. Now, the only person that, uh, that has been appointed, other than me, to the centre so far is Dr Hannah Rodman uh, as co-director, and we're also appointing a project management manager. Now, Hannah came back into academia from professional practice, and as a result has networks and credibility with our stakeholder communities like no other academic I've met. Uh, and it's in large part down to her that we are already so centrally positioned within all the key stakeholder organisations and networks that uh, I've always wanted to be part of. Uh, so thanks, Hannah, for making all of that stuff happen so fast. Uh, we're going to move to a phase where it is going to be more about building academic community. It's going to happen. Um, uh, but by starting with our stakeholder network, we can give these colleagues a much clearer set of opportunities to build on as they consider how they can use their research to build impact if they want to be part of our centre in future. Now, of course, all this is far from perfect. I, I said I'd do this warts and all, um, and it's important that I don't uh, idealise uh, what, what I'm doing. Uh, very far from it. Um, uh, and I think, for me at the moment, uh, there is just this sense of missed opportunities uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. We're so centrally positioned. Uh, I've got people emailing me, contacting me. Uh, Hannah's in the same boat uh, on an almost daily basis, asking us to input to this process, to advise uh, on this initiative, uh, feeling into policy, into practice, into business, helping NGOs, um, uh, all the stuff around COP26 was kind of crazy. <laughs> uh, and the opportunities are just way, way more than uh, me and Hannah alone um, can ever manage to, uh, to, to exploit. Uh, I don't know how many emails I've just missed, uh, let alone said no to, and, and that's frustrating. Um, and it's not the, the, the message that I want to give, but uh, at the same time, I could say, well, okay, we need to build this. We need to build it fast and create something massive that can achieve all of this stuff. And that's what I don't want to do. I want to start uh, with a clear heart. Uh, and this is a centre now which has at its heart the needs and priorities of our stakeholders and is building a set of values that uh, are broad. Uh, it's a broad church, we don't have to all be the same, uh, but that are about serving. Uh, that is about humility, that's about not saying we know best, we're the experts and do as we say. It's about asking how we can help. 
Uh, and by doing this slowly, despite the fact that it feels like you know, things are just slipping through my fingers on a day-to-day -day basis, yeah, my faith, and it is kind of blind faith at the moment, uh, at the, uh, I have to confess, uh, my, my faith is that, um, that we will be able to build something that people can now begin to build into that has a foundation of impact, that has built trust, that is both deep and wide. Uh, and as a result of that trust-based foundation, uh, we now avoid many of the conflicts of interest that I've uh, alluded to earlier on and can really deeply achieve the kind of change that we and the people who will join us uh, want to actually see. So hopefully that gives you a bit of a feel for what this whole impact culture thing is um, and hopefully by sharing how I'm putting this into practice you can get a sense of what this might look and feel like on the ground if you were to start taking this approach. I'm aware that it is a very kind of high level framework at the moment, quite abstract, so if you're not quite getting it yet, don't worry, uh, we're going to go into this in much more depth. I'm going to focus on sharing practical ideas. So as I said, I've been training with this around the world for almost almost two years now, uh, sharing ideas, um, learning from stories of what people are doing. I'll share their stories with you. So you've got loads of options, practical things that you can try out that will enable you to do more action-oriented, ethical uh, research that really makes a, a difference and solves problems for people. Uh, you have loads of ideas around community building, how you can become more of a, a knowledge broker, the kind of boundary organizations that you can create. Uh, ways of going deep on your purpose, um, uh, but also co-creating that purpose with your colleagues and those beyond uh, the, the academy, and the capacity and the leadership that we need. Uh, but things we can do ourselves, whether we're a PhD student or a professor, uh, a, a head of department, pro-vice-chancellor, uh, an impact officer, wherever we are in the hierarchy, wherever we are in our career stage, there are things we can all do to start leading the kind of change we want to see. And it's my hope that this episode has started on this journey for you and that this season will empower you to lead that change. So as promised, I'm going to uh, just finish by coming back to the book, which as I've said, is gonna launch on the 25th of March. Now you can, if you want, get a pre-publication version, hopefully later this month. Now I'm not gonna commit to any dates on that yet. Uh, so the process is we have uh, just this week sent off for hopefully our last proof. And if it comes back with no errors, then we'll be ordering the first print run. And once we've got our hands on that first print run, then we will be opening up the launch team. And you can join that. I'll explain how in a moment. And uh, if you do join that, then uh, I'm going to hope that you will come along to the launch event on the 25th of March. So make sure that you've got time in your diary to join that. And you get the pre-publication version and it is signed. So just 100 copies uh, of the book going out early and 100 places available at the launch event. Uh, and um, and if you get your pre-publication version, if you get your ticket uh, to the launch, then uh, that is going to be run as a reading group, which is, of course, why I'm releasing this early to all of you. 
So uh, hopefully you'll get at least a month, if not closer to two months. That's uh, just uh, wait and see how long it takes me. Uh, and uh, my hope is that you will come having read your copy of the book. And I'll explain to you how you can get that as an audible version uh, or a Kindle version, if that is your preference um, in terms of how you want to join the team. Uh, so uh, come along, uh, discuss, tell me what you think of the book, um, uh, discuss with each other, learn from each other, discuss with me. And this will be the first of a quarterly series of reading groups that I'm going to run in 2022, uh, but also a series of other events, so at least one event per month. Uh, these are all based on a survey that I ran last year with the Impact community, asking you what are the key things you want to learn about, you want to discuss, you want to do together as a community. So I'll be giving you much more information uh, about those events in future episodes of this podcast. Uh, but the key way to join the launch team is to make sure that you are subscribed to my email newsletter. That's where I'm going to be sending you the link. I will, of course, mention it in the podcast, uh, but uh, make sure that you don't miss this and get that uh, email straight away so you can respond instantly and book your place and, uh, and your book. Uh, sign up to the newsletter and to do that, you need to visit www.fasttrackimpact.com forward slash newsletter. So enjoy. I hope that uh, you have enjoyed this first episode. Many more to come, not just me, uh, but uh, my wife Joyce, as you've heard in the introduction, and a number of other guests uh, linked to the events that I'm going to be telling you about that will be taking place next year. I'm excited about this. I hope you are too.